when I look back at those kind of years, those really uh, beginning years when the embryonic moments of the business, um, I think it was luck and, and a weird amount of sort of self-belief. You know, when you're uh, 25, I'm 55 now, but when you're 25, there's not the slightest sort of thought in your mind that you're going to fail or could fail. You, you know, it's just... You know, it's just your gun ho going for it, yeah. and it's a it's a really uh, powerful. Uh, looking back at it, it's a really powerful energy that is, mm. um, because quite often that that does get you over the line, and that does make things happen. Welcome to Screw It, Just Do It, the number one ranked entrepreneurship podcast for business owners, entrepreneurs, and those aspiring to be so. The aim of this show is to showcase the world's most inspiring and interesting people who've decided to screw it, just do it. We offer 20% inspiration and 80% education, giving you the tools and advice to start, grow, and scale a successful business. I'm your host, Alex Chisnell, fellow entrepreneur, podcast agency owner with a number one podcast and startup advisor to global startup generator and early stage VC, Antler. Each week, I release two episodes, a Q&A every Wednesday with one of the world's most inspiring figures, plus a solo episode every Saturday where I cover the challenges that all of us are facing as entrepreneurs. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and you've ever thought of hosting your own show, then I've now put together a bunch of different options for you. Whether you are a solopreneur or a big brand and you both want to have your own podcast, I've now got a course called Ultimate Podcast Mastery. I've got coaching programs, Alex's Inner Circle, and I've got an agency, Podpreneur, that creates done-for-you podcasts. So if you would like to create, launch, and grow your own show with no experience, no knowledge, and no tech skills, then simply go to ultimatepodcastmastery.com. That's ultimatepodcastmastery.com. Welcome to episode 304 of Screw It, Just Do It with me, Alex, and my guest this week, William Watkins, founder of Radner Drinks, a Welsh farmer who diversified into water and grew the business into a £50 million drinks business. So super excited to get William on, fellow Welshman. We'd been trying to hook up for probably the best part of this year in person, but due to the obvious pandemic, I've uh, been unable to do that. So we decided to jump on a live stream and record this for you all. And, you know, this podcast is all about telling stories and for me, this is a fantastic story, um, full of inspiration um, and education for those of you who are business owners or those of you looking to start a business. Radnor Hills 
um, has been producing award-winning soft drinks from its family farm base near uh, Knighton in Powys in Mid Wales for more than 25 years now after being founded in 1990 by William Watkins, whose family farmed that very land uh, since 1903. Um, The spring water they sourced was from 12 boreholes on the family's land. Um, They turned that... um, into a business supplying water, as you'll hear, uh, and then diversified into uh, different um, flavoured waters, presses. You'll, you'll hear the full story. Um, we chat about a whole bunch of things, to be honest with you, uh, including how every business should now have a sustainability and environmental-friendly initiative, how in retail you have to expand into different sectors so you can easily adapt to outside forces, and how in business as in life you create your own luck. A little bit of luck and precise timing can make or break your business. So as I say, this is a great story, pure and simple, and within it there are some really great nuggets of information that you can take and apply into your own business, whether you're in the water business, whether you're in the food and drink, food and beverage business, or whatever uh, business you're in. So without further ado, screw it, just do it, William Watkins. Founder of of Radnor Drinks, uh, back in 1990 on the family farm in Paris, on the Welsh border. Right, absolutely right. And tell me, how many generations of your family had the farm before you decided in in 1990 to um, to start something new? Well, here we we were we were on this particular farm for five generations, um, or at least I was the fifth generation, mm-hmm. and then um, not very far away. I mean, probably only about ten miles away. That's where we'd sort of come from. So we. We weren't, we weren't really great movers. We we pretty well stuck <laughs> in the in the same area for a long time. I can't tell you how long they were there. It was more or less um, as far as we can look on the gravestones. Uh, it went back to about seventeen hundred. Wow. And after after that, all the all the stone was chipped off, so you couldn't actually make out what dates they were. Right. So been around this area for a long time. Yeah, and and tell us a little bit about the farm. So you'd have what. Cows and sheep, but no- cows and sheep, and I, you know, I was brought up very, you know, involved in the farm, and and you know, whenever you had a holiday, it was quite, you know, it's quite hard work out there on the farm, sheep, cattle, uh, pretty much as a, a normal mixed farm, really. Mm. Uh, I suppose we were farming about five hundred acres. We owned about sort of two fifty, three hundred, something like that. Farmed it and rented some more land. So um, very traditional sort of farming uh, background. Yeah. And, you know, I've read a few things um, about, about the history. I've seen articles from, um, you know, the Wales Online. Again, people who've been watching this regularly will know I'm originally from Cardiff. So I still check that publication every day, uh, specifically to look at the Welsh team selected for, uh, for this Saturday against England, yeah. which uh, we won't talk too much about, will we? <laughs> No, we've already had a little chat about that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit worried about it, if we're honest. Yeah, a little bit worried. Um, and yeah, for for you, I read that you 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 always wanted to be an entrepreneur. You actually did a dissertation um, at university on mineral water. Is is, is that I right? Did, yeah. So when when um, so I went and did a 
a, uh, a degree in food marketing up in at Newcastle. And that, so I went there in 80, I left in 88, so I went there in uh, 85, didn't I? And um, that, I suppose that was a time, you know, mineral water wasn't something you really saw anywhere. Uh, apart from, you would see Perrier yeah, yeah. in a pub, if you remember back then. Mm. And actually, the, the strange thing was, you didn't even refer to it as a mineral water, you'd refer to it as a Perrier. So if you went into a bar in those days, you'd ask for a... Uh, you know, Perrier, uh, maybe a slice of ice, whatever. Um, there wasn't really plastic versions of water around at the time. Uh, you wouldn't have seen it in a garage or in a, you wouldn't see bottled water in, you know, uh, in, in a supermarket, certainly. So it was, um, and but it was starting to uh, grow. The other place you did see it at the time was, uh, you'd see it on board little, uh, those little cup things that you, Peel off couplets, we mm. uh, and you'd get them boarded onto airlines. And of course, before the days of sort of EasyJet and Ryanair, pretty well every short haul flight would present you with, uh, you know, an in-flight meal tray. Yeah. So, so it, it was a strange form of packaging, you know. To, to, to but but it, there wasn't really bottles at the time. And um, that was about the only other place you saw packaged water. Mm. And what was the the first product that you came out with? Was it couplet with? It was, yeah. Oh, so, okay. so when I did the kind of dissertation at uh, Newcastle, which was kind of part of the degree, uh, which made up the sort of final year in my degree, um, I looked at the mineral water market at the time, and we kind of uh, I, I looked at you know, from a size and got all the Cantar data I could and what have you. And and um, it was just, it just interested me. You know, it was something that was new that was coming through. And it, it kind of, I remember telling my grandfather, who was a really traditional farmer, about um, my, you know, quite interested in this sort of new water market. And he, he just couldn't understand it, you know. <laughs> he thought it was... Absolutely, man. It was no better than sort of trying to sell fresh air, he said to me. Yeah, oh, my God, yeah. So it was just – it was um, a, a, a great time, really, that, you know, not that long after, you know, bottled water was appearing everywhere. Mm. And, you know, fast forward, you know, decades later, um, you know, taking in on board your, your great-grandfather's point and you produce, what, a bread, you know – 350 million and turning yeah. over 50 million pounds business round, round about just under 50 million and and uh, tis about 350 million units mainly uh, plastic bottles but we also do cans we do tetra uh, which are the little cartons uh, and we do glass bottles as well so we've got quite a broad range of different packaging mediums mm. and of course with that's we've added cans recently because um, you know, there's been a lot of focus on plastic and and um, environmental issues, and you know, mm. cans are are quite um, well perceived quite well from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. So um, it certainly proved there was a, a market fit then for uh, for, for your dissertation, uh, and and you yeah. diversified from the, from the farming in a, in a in a major way. Yeah. Well. Uh, when I when I then came back, I, I kind of um, did start farming. I, it wasn't as if I did the dissertation to kind of 
uh, I, it was in my mind at the time kind of just a one-off project. Right. But um, I came back and the one thing I really wanted to do was to come back to this part of the world, um, which was quite unusual back because most most of my friends were heading off to London and what have you. So I was really keen to get back here. Um, I did. I came back and started farming. And after about a year, I realized that um, dad was actually doing a pretty good job of the farming. You know, it didn't actually, uh, there wasn't really uh, a need for me to be here. So um, he he sort of, we, we had a borehole up in one of the fields that the cows, used, you know, pumped out water and the cows drank. And he, he said, well, you know, that's pretty good water up in the field. He said, you know, why don't we, uh, you know, if you're looking for something to do, why don't, why don't you try and, um, you know, see if there's a way you could sell that. Hmm. So um, so that that's how it sort of came back. It was his suggestion. And I thought, well, yeah, I will. So, you know, we looked at it and I thought, let's try the, the that couplet route. Hmm. And um, so we put a little... We actually got a, a grant as well. We we went for a farm diversification grant, and that was a government thing that they were doing at the time. Uh, and they were doing fifty thousand pounds. They would they would give you twenty. They would match fund you up to fifty thousand. So mm-hmm. um, so basically, they gave you twenty five, and you put twenty five in yourself. Uh, and it was I don't know whether the money came from Europe or where it came from, but anyway, it was a it was a very small amount of seed capital uh, that, you know, I, I think is a great example of how, you know, a little bit of money in the right place can mm. really, uh, you know, work wonders, you know. And um, so I went, we, we used that money to do up an old barn where we could produce the, the product. And then we put uh, a little couplet machine in, going back to the couplets for the airlines. Um, we sort of put all the kit in. It was a second-hand machine, so it wasn't a very expensive one. Very low capital cost to get into, mm. really, compared to bottling or anything else. And um, I basically packed a few boxes of it, put it in the back of a car, and drove down to uh, Heathrow and Gatwick and started knocking on the doors of all the airline caterers. Right. So I was going to say, is that, is that how you got your first customers, literally, that, in yeah, the airline? Really. I exactly did. Oh. My first airline was actually, um, it, well, it was it was it was an airline caterer, but it was owned by SAS Scandinavian Airlines, and they had a company called SAS Service Partner, mm-hmm. and they had this lovely guy who's a Welshman uh, called Roy Williams, who I think took pity on me. I remember him so well. He was the very first person who ever bought anything off me. And I don't know what he, where he is now, but I owe that guy a beer, definitely. And um, he, um, he, he, he started taking the cups, and, and that meant I had to go down the following week to make another delivery to him. Right. So I had a little Vauxhall Cavalier, uh, and so I'd load the boxes into the back of the Cavalier, take it down, drop, do the drop to Roy Williams, and then go and see some other airline caterers while I was down there. Uh, and then I'd sort of come back. That would be sort of Monday and Tuesday sorted. Wednesday would be, you know, pack some more boxes for the following week. And then Thursday and Friday was going work back on the farm. Oh, really? <laughs> and then, you know, you got I got another customer, and that meant that, you know, that took Thursday out as well. And then after a while I had to turn around, Dad, and say, 
you know, Dad, I'm afraid I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sort of stop farming now. And 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 that was it, you know. And and one by one, we started getting uh, Trotter's forties to quite a lot of airline catering. That was quite a big win at the time. And uh, there was a company they're not back now. They're, they're called Portions, who kind of controlled online a lot of online catering at the time. So we got in with them a little bit. So you know, we started uh, developing the business really. And did you? Get, were you able to make it profitable quite quickly, given your overheads were, were relatively low? Yeah, I, we were because there was no one at the time doing these couplets in any great scale. So mm. there was nobody who had any real uh, better uh, economies of scale than ourselves at the time. Mm. I mean, things have changed enormously in packaging water. You've really got to have economies of scale now. Yeah. But at that time, there was, I think, only two of us in the country making these cups, couplets. Uh, and uh, so that was fine. Uh, you know, we were able to make it relatively profitable. But got kind of got lucky after that because I got to hear that McDonald's, and McDonald's did a, uh, a cup of water in, in France. And um, they moved to, they, I don't know, probably had a couple of hundred stores in the UK at the time. And they wanted to introduce water onto their menu board. And um, they didn't, you know, hadn't thought about it. Well, they might have thought about it, but they, they did a cup in France and they thought that was the way they wanted to do it in Britain. But they didn't want to do it with a French brand. Uh, they wanted to do it with a UK one. And so I got to hear about that. And I went along and said, look, we're already doing these cups uh, for the airlines. It's kind of pretty much the same thing we could do for you. Um, once again, got lucky. I met a lovely guy who um, who was actually a farmer uh, from Devon, and I remember doing the pitch to him, and he sort of listened to the pitch and then sort of said, tell me about the farm, and, you know, what sort of cows have you got? How many, uh, you know, how many calves and how many sheep, you know, and lots of goats. So he, he was um, – so we, we, we kind of went into a trial with them, and then, um, and then they took it national. Uh, and I actually went on to supply McDonald's for, for probably ten, eight, probably nine, nine or ten years, something like that. Mm. They were a brilliant company. They're always they were a brilliant company to supply. Actually, I always um, look back. They they kind of brought a lot of discipline to us as well, and made us sort of start looking at you know if you're going to be a food supplier of any kind, you've got to make sure you've got good systems in place, and mm. food safety has always got to be. Uh, right up there. So, so yeah. They, from an early time, they they kind of did make us, uh, you know, concentrate on the right areas, really. And when you take on a contract like that, or you know, with you know one of these bigger airlines, you know, at the time, you know, you hear so many stories of people, you know, getting offered something like that and just going, yeah, yeah, we can do that. We can supply ten thousand of your, uh, you know, establishments with that, and then going back and thinking, right. How the hell do we do that? Yeah, did you, well, did you have those systems in place? Or? 100%. I mean, that was always the way, you know. The, so it's kind of the, at the beginning of the meeting, you'd say, right, the answer is yes. Now give me the question. <laughs> that was kind of, <laughs> that was kind of the, the, the approach, you know. So we were always 
um, looking, and in fact, you know, that ha did happen so many times. They looked at the cups, McDonald's did, and said, look, we, we want to move to bottles. Can you do it? Yes. And then we went back, I went back and looked at, you know, what, what that meant actually in terms of, um, you know, putting machinery in it, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I think if, if you want to sort of in, 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 be, be an entrepreneur, you've got to take that attitude more often than not. You know, you've got to take every opportunity and try and develop it mm. and, and, you know, say, say yes and then ask them what the answer question is. I love that. Um, and, you, I mean, you mentioned luck, William, but, you know, how much when you look back do you think uh, you you were listening, you, you saw the opportunity, you heard the opportunity, and you acted on it rather than luck, or, or do you think? Well, you, you do make your own luck, don't you? Yeah. But when I look back at those kind of years, those really uh, beginning years when the embryonic moments of the business um i think it was luck and and a weird amount of sort of self-belief you know when you're uh 25 i'm 55 now but when you're 25 there's not the slightest sort of thought in your mind that you're gonna fail or could fail you, you know it's just you know it's just you're gung-ho going for it yeah and it's a it's a really uh powerful uh, looking back at it is a really powerful energy that is mm. um, because quite often that that does get you over the line and that does make things happen and so I I mean sometimes I kind of think that as you get older you get more cautious in many ways mm. uh, and, and when you're at that part of your life you are just you know I, I just didn't conceive of it ever failing I you know it wasn't in my it, just, it wasn't going to happen, you know. I couldn't see in any way that it was going to fail. So it was luck. It was a bit of youthful energy. And I think, you know, obviously I was lucky that we're in a marketplace that was exploding around us. Yeah, yeah. It's always easier to be in a sector that's growing. Mm. I mean, you know, it's, it just makes complete uh, obvious sense, really. I mean, there are examples of companies that make businesses work, even in declining sectors. But it's a damn sight easier if your overall sector is uh, growing. Yeah, and uh, chatted to a few people over over the years about this with regards to getting into the supermarkets, and interested to know then uh, for, for yourself, you know, you got airlines, you got McDonald's. At, at what point do you then think did you need the supermarkets? Or again, was it like a chance conversation? Was it part of your strategy? Well, we we uh, uh, I said that McDonald's went on for. Um, went on for 10 years or so. I think it was about 2001 or so. And um, and we actually lost them sort of overnight. Unfortunately, uh, a kind of deal was done in Atlanta uh, or wherever the base is with Nestle or Danone, one of those companies. Right. And they sort of globally did a deal. And, and it wasn't, uh, we, we, you know, so we were out. And, and at that point, uh, I don't know. We were probably turning over about three million, I think, and um, so it's been quite slow and steady growth, maybe mm. a bit more. But um, but they were they were probably two thirds of it, and they were uh, you know, and also in terms of the profit. So we took this incredible hit, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was desperate, really. And I remember thinking that well, there's only two ways we're going to 
go forward from here. We're either just going to pack it up and or, or we're going to have to um, start looking at places like supermarkets and that's going to mean kitting up uh, and automating and, you know, original point really making sure that you had the right kind of economies of scale so that's a moment that we put our first fully automated uh bottling line in uh obviously cups had gone pretty much by then and the, and the future was clear clear to us all mm. in the industry it was going to be in, in in plastic bottles so so i um you know we started really hitting at that point um you know Automation, automation became, uh, and getting our cost space right there, and that meant we meant we could approach the supermarket sensibly, knowing that you know their price their price expectations were really achievable to us. And when you say, "Wow, that's a that's a huge percentage of business," isn't it? I, I always remember a client of mine going years back when I was in the sports and um, and fitness space and um, lady that <coughs> telling me that her husband you know had this huge business all the kids were up in private school in London um, she would come down to the second home down here in um, you know on the south coast in Poole and Dorset and um, I remember telling me amazing business got one one um, one client IKEA been supplying IKEA for 30 years amazing and then Literally, I just got an email, you know, on one Sunday night saying, sorry, um, husband lost the contract with Ikea, don't have a business, literally overnight. Yeah. Well, exactly. And that, that was another thing I learned, that we had to make a business that was way broader mm-hmm. and just rely. You know, we've been in the comfort zone and just relied on that one uh, piece of business really driving the and we had to make it a much broader business, much safer. It was important to do that, you know, for, for the business, but for the people who worked in the business as well. You know, for you know, what we forget was that everyone's this is everyone's uh, income and future. Yeah. So, so you know, we had to make it safe for all of us working in the business. So, having a you know just one main customer wasn't wasn't a good model. Uh, and we had to kind of split it up, not just customer, but also between sectors, looking at different sectors. So, you know, so, and now we do a really broad, different number of areas. But but retail is an important part of it. And um, certainly, you know, when you're looking for volume, uh, that's something that no one can quite deliver quite like the uh, quite like the supermarkets. No, and and did you find it a relatively straightforward process? Because uh, you know, having come, you know, last four or five years, I've been working with with Virgin Startup, um, Richard Branson's not for profit, and you know, so many people want to start a business in the in the F and B space, and it's usually you know the questions we get asked when we do live events is you know how do I um, approach you know one of the supermarkets, and I'm always interested in your answer. Well, do you know it's a very slow process. Um, and it, it tends to take a long time to, uh, you know, of, of, you know, getting it, it, get presenting and then going back, and it doesn't happen overnight. In all honesty, mm. um, and and that's what can quite often frustrate uh, people wanting to get in into supermarkets for the first time. Um, and and the other thing I'd say is that um, so much of supermarkets has moved towards own branded products. 
So back in the day, back in, the, I suppose, the 90s, if you'd walked down your uh, average supermarket aisle, you would have probably have found a lot of, you know, brand, branded products compared to now. Mm. Um, now the supermarkets is very cleverly developed different ranges. They've got their essentials at the bottom or the basics or whatever, and yeah. they have their best range at the top. They split it all up, and that's largely meant that, you know, in, in 1990 you walk down your average aisle, I don't know what the figure exactly would have been, but there would have been a lot of branded products. Now um, you take out your big five, so Britvic and Coke and Pepsi and so on, AG bars. Um, there are very few sort of startup brands on the shelves, very few really. Mm. Uh, and it's incredibly difficult to get them there. And the other thing is if they don't move when they do get there, they'll get delisted pretty down, down quickly. Yeah. So so you've got to have a strategy if you do not just uh, – I, th- I think one of the things that the supermarket wants to see is what's your plan to make sure that this product is going to move off their shelf. Yeah. Um, so just arriving with a, a beautiful product, even though it might be a beautiful product, is one thing. But, you know, a really uh, well-thought-through strategy for as to how that's going to move off their shelves. Because you probably have got, you know, nine months, six to nine months to make it work. Really? It okay. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And what do you think now, like when you when you do see uh, these, you know, call them challenger brands now, don't they, coming through, be that like you see, you see like ugly drinks or double Dutch drinks or Dalston soda? We've seen oh, I think it's brilliant. I mean, one of the things about being in soft drinks is it's such a dynamic environment and you've got these really, you call them challenger brands because they are, but they're brilliant brands yeah. and, and they've really... And they're pushing the market in all different directions. And, and, you know, some of them come along, Alex. Over the years I've sort of done soft drinks, occasionally a product has come along that hasn't create, been a new product. It's actually been a new product that has created an entirely new category. Yeah. Um, and and uh, so I'm thinking of, for example, uh, you know, well, Fever Tree recently has done it, you know, yes. premiumizing yeah. mixers. But when Red Bull came along, nobody's seen an energy drink. And suddenly, we, you know, there was an energy category. Everyone was doing it. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, even when smoothies came along, you know, nobody had seen a smoothie and Innocent came along. And, and the thing about that is when – if a challenger brand can sort of capture the market, then they get that sort of first mover advantage. Mm. It can be very powerful. Um, it makes it, you know – a very exciting sector to be sort of operating a business in. You've got to be kind of prepared to keep your eyes open because some, I mean, there are ever so many. You mentioned some successful ones there, but, um, there's, you know, for every one of those, there's probably, you know, 20 yeah. that have, you know, fallen by the wayside. But, but um, you know, so it, it's a it's a dangerous game to play. I mean, it's, you, you very often see an awful lot of these new trends sort of happening, or you did. This is quite interesting. You did within the M25 because the prior prior, prior to COVID, um, you know, it was it, it was, and I hope it gets back to this. But that's where you saw the real churning of new ideas happening 
within the soft drinks market. And you saw, um, you know, some really innovative ideas coming out. Uh, and that's why whenever I go to London, I just absolutely love dropping in on every uh, news agent and, and you know, uh, convenience store I can to see what their kind of soft drinks offer is. And you always see brilliant new products. You know, uh, you know, last time I was there, it was really all about CBD. Yes. And, yeah, and, yeah. You, and you know, that's so typical of soft drinks because it's it, a drink really is such a good carrier. You know, <clears throat> you know, if you want to put vitamins in, it's a good way of delivering it. CBD, you know, mm-hmm. you name it. You know, you can come up with anything you like. It's a, it's a very, um, it's a very good way to deliver um, a, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, a product or or a vitamin or whatever or a mineral. Yeah, I just got sent some uh, CBD drinks actually from Pure Earth, who, who like I think it started out with like these water kefirs, which I'd never heard of again, like a probiotic drink, <clears throat> yeah. and then you know juices as well, and then now it's like a CBD shot as well. Yeah, so yeah. Like, wow, I haven't seen those before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, th- I I think you know it will never stop. I mean, a new diet comes out, and you'll probably see a drink uh, attached. To it. A new film comes out, and there'll be. Uh, you know, a new cartoon character and they're selling it, you know, they're doing a bottle in the shape of some cartoon character for, for the kids. You know, it's yeah. just it's a very, very dynamic kind of sector to be in. And the other thing that's interesting is that you've kind of got to be watching what's happening. So here we are in soft drinks, but you can have, um, you know, ideas skip across categories quite a lot mm-hmm. as well. So something happening over in snacks. You know, other, especially in those FMCG sort of areas where they can sometimes hop across into your area. So, uh, I mean, a good example was Levi Roots, you know, when he did uh, his great barbecue sauce, which is, yeah. you know, it's a great, great, great sauce. I love it. But, um, you know, it was a hop, skip and a jump. It was suddenly you were seeing sausages with Levi Roots on and, and it wasn't long before right. you, saw, you saw a soft drink with uh Levi Roots on, and there is one now backed by AG Bars. So, um, so it's it's interesting. You've got to kind of be aware not just about what's proteins. Another thing, you know, mm. protein sort of suddenly started happening in all kinds of different sectors, and you're seeing it now coming into soft drinks. Quite a few challenges actually with protein in soft drinks, but it uh, you know if you can get over the technical challenges, uh, you know, it, it's another good category. So. Being aware of what's happening elsewhere is important. And and for you, in the the amount of people that you, you now employ, um, which in the hundreds, I'd, I'd imagine. Yeah, no, we, we're about. I think uh, in the factory here, we're about one hundred and eighty, something like that. Okay, and and do you, you know, part of your team? Do they, you know, keep an eye on those innovations and and you know, oh, yeah. you've tried over the years? Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know. Uh, <laughs> We, and we don't necessarily do it in a formal way. You know, we will do – if somebody in our sales team, and we've got a great sales team, if somebody sees – anyone sees a new product, it's on the WhatsApp and it's in, you know, straight right. back in. Yeah. So, you know, we're, you know, we're all sets of eyes and ears. And most likely the partners or the wives are also uh, going to be keeping their eyes open. The kids will come back with what they might have seen. So – you know, we're all, you know we're we're looking 
all the time to see what, what, what is out there and what's changing. And is that also the case? Um, so I was chatting to one of the founders of Lush, uh, Rowena Bird, last week, and um, she was saying, you know, in, in regards to innovation, which we've just been, you know, talking about now, that the same for packaging and, you know, sustainability is, is so big. And she was saying, you know, when we just had a you know, simple bar of soap and then we'd have to have, you know, plastic around it, then it would go in like a cardboard <laughs> box because now – you know, we've had a ship come over from Portugal with Portuguese cork and we're literally just putting the soap inside this, um, uh, you know, cork. And it's literally as simple as that. And, th- you know, that wasn't, wouldn't have been the case 25 years ago when Lush started, not a dissimilar no. time to you. And do, are you the same? Because I see like the Tetra Pak side of things. Oh, yeah. No, look, I think the biggest thing facing our industry now um, is without any question making sure that, we uh, come up with the goods on the environmental side. Mm. Um, and it's really important for, for, for us to get this right. I think it was quite, it's quite interesting, actually, that when um, the sugar tax came along, uh, Coke, being the biggest of all of the soft drinks companies, uh, sort of tried to fight that. And they, for a short time, but they did. And actually, and, and so did a lot of the soft drinks industry. What we learned from that as an industry was that when the general public, uh, and it wasn't just Coke that did, did that, but it, a lot of a lot of people did, but when the general public and the media are onto something, there's no stopping it. Yeah. And so we all, with the sugar tax, uh, accepted it in the end. We went back and reformulated our drinks, and actually they're fine. In fact, what we learned was that people were drinking way too sweet of drinks, way sweeter than they needed to actually be. Mm. Um, So so the same thing has happened now with uh, not long after that, that had hardly gone away and we were into the environmental issue. And very quickly within the industry, we all recognised this. It wasn't wasn't, – Coke immediately came out and said, right, we're going to tackle this and do the right thing. We did – Everyone in our trade association did. There was absolute unanimous uh, um, decision on it. Mm. And so what we're trying to do is get in a deposit return scheme, which will mean that you pay 20, as a consumer, you'll pay 20p and you'll redeem that at anywhere, you know. And yeah. so we'll, we'll get all of that packaging material back in to kind of a closed loop system. And we should see, I mean, they've got these systems elsewhere. So Norway have got it. Germany have got a very good system. And they're recovering something like 90, exactly, I don't know, it was well up in the 90%, 97% or 8% of all plastic is, is being recovered back into wow. the system and recycled. working, yeah. And so hmm. if we go, if we get this right, um, by sort of 2023, uh, it should be coming in. And I would think that maybe not the first year, but within two or three years, we should be well up in the 90% uh, of re- recovering our packaging material. But you're actually right. We have have done – so plastic is a big part of what we do. But obviously, Tetra is a very sustainable packaging format. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we, you know, so we've got into that – because it gives the consumer options, you know, uh, as to what, how they want to. In fact, we've just started doing cans, as I said, 
and we're putting water into cans. And, you know, there are those people. I mean, the, the thing about aluminium is it's complete, it's recyclable forever. Yeah. You know? yeah. It, 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 so that it is a very good, very good format to put your drinks in. Um, and so we, we've, we like to give the consumers really the option of how they want to buy the drinks from us. Mm. Yeah, it makes sense. I, was, I interviewed before um, Josh White, one of the founders of Canna Water, you know, mm. with the black, black and white labelling who seemed to be doing uh, pre-COVID yeah. very well and then just took a massive hit. He said, you know, I spoke to him a couple of months into lockdown and, yeah. um, you know, massive struggle, massive struggle. Yeah, well, it's – I'm afraid COVID has uh, thrown the cards up in the air for all of us and um, – it is absolutely random how they're falling down. Uh, you know, some of us are in the right – well, for us, we're in some of the right sectors. Some of the sectors we sell into have completely gone, completely gone. They, they sort of vanished. Um, other areas have, you know, suddenly come out of the woodwork and doing quite quite well. As a general rule, our, our, you know, Tetra, for example, has done quite well during it because – a lot of things have gone towards packed lunches and, you know, uh, trying to keep things in a, in a you know, handed over box for meals at hotel. So that's actually amazed us. It's done quite well. Um, other areas, if you're selling into pubs, you've had a very, very tricky time. Mm. Uh, restaurants, obviously, there was quite a long period. You couldn't sell anything at all. So it's been you – know, and it's been too late to – to suddenly change direction overnight, uh, you know, you pretty well are in the sectors you were in. So it's been very difficult to, to respond that quickly to it. But, I mean, one thing it has taught us uh, is, is that even for us, and I, I've got to say that I was a sceptic and some of our sales guys um, started saying, well, why don't we have a go with this Amazon and online selling? And I've always felt that soft drinks were a bit of a bulky, heavy product that maybe didn't suit, you know, on the online platform terribly well. Yeah. My goodness, I've been wrong, you know. Really? Uh, yeah, because huh. uh, people really will, uh, you know, buy soft drinks. You know, I thought it was mainly sort of iPods and uh, things they, they bought. iPods don't exist anymore. I know that. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> the... Uh, um, iPhones and things, but, yeah. but no, I mean soft drinks. You know, online is 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 a good is a good is a developing format, getting better all the time. Yeah, yeah, and I've spoken to a few people with that kind of direct to consumer route where it when it has worked, they pivoted that business. You know, during during lockdown to do that. And um, one of the questions we got asked to, to position to you was, um, have you trial difference? Uh, formats different drinks and they haven't worked in that personal experience i i worked with virgin atlantic for many years and i remember being at the launch of virgin cola with mm -hmm. richard branson and that's yeah. probably the biggest one i can remember but have you ever tried yeah. things like a cola or a smoothie well, or a you know um co cola is um so gripped by the biggest company in the world isn't it but i remember so well that launch and it it came out in a silver bottle, didn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. It was in a silver bottle, and it was a really good product. It was, uh, it was a great product, and it was. Um, I I thought it was going to do really well, mm. actually, 
And it obviously had the power of Virgin behind it, or branding, whatever. Yeah. But it just showed you, um, it, it, you know, there are some areas that that didn't, you know, it, 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 the powers of some of the. I, I mean, I often use this phrase, and um, we are really because there's such enormous corporate giants in our sector. We are like uh, mice uh, trying to pick. And that's kind of the analogy, I think, is quite good because the, these enormous monsters, that, I mean, you can easily move quicker than them, but if you get stepped on, you're dead. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's where, you know, suddenly Coke res- saw Virgin as a real threat uh, because yes. of them, yeah. and they moved, Coke and Pepsi moved heaven and earth to make sure uh, you know, it didn't get off the ground probably. So, so yeah. but it, it was a good product. And I remember seeing it and thinking, um, yeah, that's really going to, that, that's really going to work. But who am I to say? Because I remember the first time seeing Red Bull and thinking that'll never work. <laughs> that's a hell of a brand um, now, isn't it? Yeah, I, I remember with Virgin, or reading about it afterwards with like the Virgin Cola and um, just hearing, you know, like Coca Cola just making sure that there was literally no space on any supermarket shelf that there was available to actually put those products that uh, Virgin Cola were making, and they just squeezed them out of the market. Yeah, well, that was it. And they they could, they had the money, and, and they, they'll probably do that now still, but they, I, I know they would have seen Virgin as a major threat. So, but, you yeah. know, out in Germany, there's a very good uh, two, 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 what they, two brothers, I think, and they they've come up with a fantastic coke that really is challenging, um, really is challenging coke. Uh, so okay. so it can happen. Uh, you know, never say mm. a lot of things. I think you know, it's it's weird. It's timing. A lot of products might be very good products, but it's also about getting that timing absolutely bang on right and having the whole mar- the right marketing kind of packaging around it as well. Nowadays, obviously, a strong social media input and all the rest of it. But it's kind of timing, I think, is, with getting the products right. Sometimes, it's, um, you know, you can just go a little early and it doesn't quite hit the right spot. And then but you, it's the very same product six months later could, or 12 months later, could just be bang on the money. Mm. Um, some more questions that are coming. Jonathan, um, head of user acquisition at uh, CLYX, says, do you think bottled water is a product Generation Z are still going to buy? All of the data says declining in that segment. If so, what would be your 10-year plan? Good question. Well, um, my 10-year plan is not to do too much water uh, because it's probably the, the, uh, the, the, the least uh, profitable sector of uh, the soft drinks. So currently, we're probably doing about fifteen percent of what we do is pure water, um, and and the rest is anything from a soft drink to a mixer to to a juice. Um, but what's happened in uh, I th- what what you were seeing in in bottled water was a really pretty steady growth year on year. It was always massively skewed by a hot summer. Um, you know, where you'd see uh, you know figures go through the roof. But um, there was seeing growth of sort of seven to ten percent, something of that order, for for the last sort of ten years probably. Um, I think 
that you are going to still see. I mean, if we, especially if we, de- it's critical to us that we deal with this environmental issue. If we deal with that properly, then I see no reason why we shouldn't return to good level, levels of growth. And not just do it properly. We need to do it and get the trust of uh, the, the British consumer in, in doing so, so that they they feel that, yeah, it's a responsible thing because there, there is a growing number of people, I'm afraid, who feel that buying a bottle of plastic uh, at the moment is an irresponsible thing to do. Uh, and yeah. what we need to make sure is that they can see that that just goes back into the packaging, we recycle it, and it comes back out as a bottle. And then I don't think there's any any reason that anyone can have uh, why it's wrong to have it. Yeah. Um, Tom says Fritz Cola is the German. Fritz Cola, yeah, exactly right, yeah. I uh, don't know that. Okay. Interesting. Uh, I really said Fritz, but it was start, that was started up by two friends, I think. Right, okay. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah, um, I think we might even have a comment straight back in. Uh, Red Bull even made a cola too. I didn't know Yeah, that. they did. Huh. Uh, Tom, uh, software, software engineer from First Principles, uh, asks, I know that you have invested in robotic palletizers. What additional automation would you like to have in your factory? Well, um, robots are incredible things. Uh, we started buying them three or four years ago. And I had no idea how how uh, much of a difference they can make to your factory. It's critical to us um, that automation is at the top, and it means we can produce at least cost. Now, obviously, mm. what that also often, or people often say, well, that means that you have less people. That means that you get rid of people. In fact, the, and, and to some extent, that might be true for some companies, but what it's meant for us is that we've actually, it's meant we've got more business, we've grown, and we've had to retain the same number of people. So our, our right. workforce has sort of remained pretty steady. Um, but the only way I see it is that if you don't adopt these new fantastic, uh, not just robots, but, you know, all kinds of automation around the factory, you know, the way we do all our cleaning and processing, instead of standing there with a hand valve on a, tank and making sure we're cleaning it for 10 minutes we just press a button now and lots of valves switch over and the whole thing's automatic and and um, it's much more efficient it's much quicker you're much more sure that it's been done properly and it means that you can go out and be more competitive and when you can be more competitive you can win more work so i think yeah. there's um there will be industries where it it uh, you know actually has uh, a negative effect on employment rates. But in our industry, it's kind of, or in our business, it's actually worked the other way. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, more questions coming in. Dr. Joward um, asks, are there any specific guidelines to follow when innovating a soft drink in a safe way? Should you use someone with specific skills to develop your ingredients? Good question. Yeah, I mean, the we all know from experience when a when somebody comes and asks us to make a soft drink, what what sort of level of processing and what type of processing we'll have to do that drink. If you, it's very important to make sure uh, that when you do that innovation, you you get the 
the right level of processing, which is uh, the right right for that product. Um, if you don't, for example, if you were doing a glass bottle and you didn't process it in the correct, correct way, um, you'll get fermentation happen. And this does happen occasionally where a glass bottle will explode on the shelf quite, you know, just uh, one after another will explode. A can will. I, actually, we took one of these cans, not one of these ones, but what a can we produced. And, um, and I took it off the line before it had been through the pasteurizer. Uh, it was full of juice, actually, or it's 50% juice product which is something you should never, I actually did it because I wanted to, to take it back to my office, I took it back to my office. And I remember um, about three weeks later, I'd forgotten about this can and the top blew off in my office. Uh, you know, that's, that's what happens if you don't get, uh, you know, wow. check out what the ingredients are, how you need to process it. So very, very definitely that's uh, important to get done. Thank you for that one. Okay. Uh, Will Langston, Ops Director at Timpsons, asks, what has been your best and worst moments in business so far? Um, and I suppose we've got this year, which could probably incorporate maybe both of those, but maybe taking the pandemic out of it. Um, yeah. Well, I think the worst before. would have been the losing uh, McDonald's. That would, have, uh, <coughs> that would have definitely have been the worst one. Um, and that was kind of a lot of, you know, sitting around moping for a, a short while before we sort of pulled ourselves together and said, right, we're going to hit it. And there's been so many good moments, actually. Uh, it's difficult to pick one out. I, I think, um, you know, that, that's been the roller coaster of it, that I, I kind of forget the bad moments fairly quickly and uh, as soon as I can and, and actually get on and uh, and think of the good ones. But I suppose if I just pick one, um, when we, and it's a machinery to the lead one. So um, when we, when we first of all fired up our latest and last uh, production line, which was, you know, which was a hugely fast and uh, I think it runs at about 36 uh, or 7,000 bottles an hour. And, and, you know, that's quick. I mean, they're coming off like absolute bullets. And when we finally installed that and it was purring away, and I would say purring because the line was there, there was only about two people in the entire building. You know, that's when you think, yep, automation does work. <laughs> nice. And do you, are you one of these people who uh, celebrates each success? Uh, only because I think it was our first talk to kick this off with Rowena from, from Lush and, um, she said they're really bad at Lush at celebrating the successes they have. They said, like, you know, we always, I always think pride comes before a fall and they're always really reticent about yeah, celebrating. I, 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 like, really? I, I, think, <laughs> I think it's really important you do celebrate. And I think it's really important that everyone uh, in the whole team, I, mean, I would say, you know, we've got a fantastic team here. And I think everyone's invested in it and, you know, involved in it. I think it comes a little bit from it being. We are a very rural business. We're out in the middle of the countryside. And, um, mm. I, you know, everyone really uh, has a tremendous, a tremendously conscientious about it. And, and I think 
we've, we need to make sure we do celebrate it uh, often enough. We, we certainly normally do at our Christmas party. That's, <laughs> that's normally a place we celebrate it properly. <laughs> nice. Um, quick question from Jonathan that's followed up his uh, previous question. What was the McDonald's? You might have missed the beginning bit. I'm not sure. What was the McDonald's revenue um, replaced with? Because you, you mentioned then looking yeah, at well, um, well, I'll tell you what happened at that time. Um, we it was it was an explosion in clear flavored drinks. Um, if it, I mean now you see them on the supermarket shelves all the time. But in those days, you know, in the 90s, uh, clear drinks hadn't really been seen much before. I mean, if you bought a Panda Pop, it was sunset yellow. And it, if you bought a, a bubblegum, it was bright yeah. blue and what have you. So, so there was an absolute explosion in clear-flavoured drinks. So, and, and we'd already got the bottling machine. We just had to get a, a mixer. So it was one item, a bolt-on to the rest of the production line. That meant you could actually, uh, um, you know, make a soft drink as opposed to just a water. So that was a really uh, important thing that we shifted. When McDonald's went, we shifted and we started doing more and more soft drinks at that point. Okay. Um, and another question uh, come in from Tony. Um, biggest frustration right now? I bet you've got a few off the back of um, COVID, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> like everyone uh, at the moment, it's, it's got to be... Um, I think, in a way, my biggest frustration at the moment is the way in which generally business, I think, is kind of just like the football that is being... You know, we've been treated yeah. appallingly, I think, in many ways over the COVID uh, is, uh, year that we've had. Also about Brexit. I mean, it's appalling how, in my view, how Brexit has, you know, been around twice now. We've, we've had to stock up. I mean, at the moment, we're taking juice in as quick as we can go from Europe. The second time we've done this, um, this year, uh, just trying to beat, the, you know, because we've had no clarity. I, I, that's my biggest frustration. I don't think politicians, um, they obviously have their own agendas. And I think they see business generally as just this wonderful cash cow that they can sort of lean on whenever they want, however they want. And we, we here in, and, and we're kind of seen by them as being the greedy entrepreneurs. And, and actually, if, you know, if we do well, all of our businesses do well. That means all the people who work for us are in a in a stable place and a good place. Yeah. Hopefully, enjoying their jobs. Um, and you know, we pay an awful lot of tax back into the system. So, mm. you know, we, I, I don't think we're a force for bad. We're a force for good. And I just don't feel that. It, you know, I would. My answer to sorry, your your, your question would be just. You know, see business as a force for good. Hundred percent, hundred percent agree with you. Uh, Will asks, um, where do you see your biggest opportunity for growth in the next five years, William? Oh, definitely. Um, within, I think we're going to see a lot of growth in canned products. I think. Um, mm -hmm. You know. Uh, it's just because cans have become sexy again. I mean, they've been around forever and they've sort of 
they've sort of gone from being really quite boring things and recently for whatever reason i don't quite know why but they've become really the 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 uh, the, the sexy thing to have so i think cans will be a, a big part of our growth um tetra's well behind good as well i mean we we'll keep looking this is a great thing about soft drinks you just don't know where that opening is going to come there could be tomorrow a new product alex and before you know it you've got another category like red bull energy yeah yeah exciting place to be like you're saying look we're just um Bringing this to a close, uh, Tom comments, craft beer has gone from bottles and now uh, mostly cans. Thank you, Tom. And, um, yeah, your, your daughter, Kate, uh, connected us. Interested to know, like, with, with your children, um, how many of them have you got working in the business and, and how much do you now uh, – start thinking about you know future running of the business what sectors do they want to get involved in future planning those kind yeah, of things yeah well um that's got to come into my thinking now over the next few years i mean the the one thing i i was always pretty and this is our family farm you know as i said earlier fifth generation so i'm not kind of ever i didn't set it up wanting to sell it particularly uh, I mean, I get ever so many people coming to me all the time to want to to, to buy it. But but um, I, I, my my sort of view is that you know I've got to find a way in which the business can grow, be uh, and that the family can uh, be involved in it if they want to. But but it shouldn't be a noose around their neck, and they shouldn't feel obliged they have to do it. And to be honest, if they come into the business, they've got to be good. Uh, you know, that's the other mm. thing. So. I, I think um, I think getting that balance right is going to be something I have to work on over the uh, you know over the next few years. And do you get people? I remember interviewing. Uh, that's another Coca Cola thing. Is it interviewing Richard Reed from Innocent and saying you know uh, again inventing you know virtually inventing a brand new category. Uh, getting people, you know, asking to to buy your business, asking to to buy a percentage of your oh, business, yeah. uh, and as that it does yeah. happen a lot. And um, mm. I mean, uh, it, you know, I don't pursue it because it, it's time time wasting, really, uh, from my point of view. But but it's um, you know, it's something that's, uh, and I think there's probably a lot of people, particularly with COVID at the moment, uh, you know, a lot of shark circling, should we say. Uh, feeling, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, there's uh, opportunities out there. Mm, great. And look, last question then, because we're coming right up to the hour. So really appreciate you taking an hour of your Thursday evening oh, no. uh, with us. Appreciate it. Um, Violet asks, where can we buy Radna infusions currently? That's actually my wife's favourite. Uh, we discovered them in Cornwall on a beach in the summer, funnily enough. Um, and so she asks, yeah, that, that, where can we buy the Radna infusions currently, your can? Yeah, well, we've got them on, on, online uh, with Amazon. and, and uh, um, But we've got it going around. Our, we, we do probably about 200 wholesalers around the country. And uh, they oh, are... Okay generally you know so they find their way into all kinds of different uh areas uh i don't want to say mm-hmm. anything too soon but we've got good uh good feelers out in amongst the supermarkets but as i said earlier you know that's always 
a slightly slower process. Yeah, yeah, understood. Um, well, look, thank you 100% thank you, Alex. Uh, for doing this. Really enjoyed it. So as I said earlier, I'm glad to finally um, nail down that chat with William, uh, which we did as a live stream as we've been trying to arrange that in person in uh, in Wales or in London um, over the course of the last year and due to the obvious pandemic, hadn't been able to do that. So just decided to jump on a live in the end because... As you know, restrictions kept getting tighter and tighter with regards to travel here and in the UK. So I'm glad we did it. Really enjoyed it. It's just such a great story. I love it from literally, um, you know, drilling holes to find water um, for the cattle on the farm and then turning that into a business that supplied airlines and then McDonald's, and then to have grown it in such a way and diversified into such different array of products uh, is fantastic. And yeah, look, I I agree. Um, you you do create your own luck um, in business. Uh, for me, you know, it is about keeping your ears and eyes open for opportunity, um, and then you know when you recognise that opportunity, leveraging that opportunity. Um, and not everybody is able to do that. People have their ears and eyes closed to opportunity and it, and it passes them by. So you, you've really got to have things, have your mind open to these opportunities and timing is everything. Uh, you know, if you think back to how huge uh, and powerful, um, veganism is now yet, yeah, if someone had come to you with that idea, um, you know, which people did, those businesses were around then, but, you know, 20 to 30 years ago, it never had that same pull, that same impact. Likewise, businesses that have been launched in the sustainability uh, sector, as we talked about environmental businesses, um, couldn't get a look in 20, 30 years ago. So it really is about, for me, opportunity. Um, I think it's great how businesses like this are able to innovate as well. It's innovate or die, isn't it, really, in the current climate? So, you know, having a sustainability and environmental-friendly initiative are clearly key. Um, certain de demographics and parts of the population, you know, voting with their wallets as to what businesses they spend their money on. And, you know, for those of you listening to this, you know, if you are, you know, a smaller business, which is, you know, whatever it is, 95, 99% of the, of the country, then you do have massive advantages over the big guys in being able to do that and being able to move quickly and, uh, you know, turn your hand to different products and services, uh, launching a sustainability charter and environmental policy, all those kinds of things uh, as well. So look, hope you enjoyed that. As always, um, I hope you've had a great start to uh, 2021. And I wish you continued success. And thank you for listening to this show. If you'd like to learn how to launch and grow your own number one rated podcast like this, with zero experience, zero knowledge, and zero tech skills, come and join me at ultimatepodcastmastery.com where I've just launched 
for a limited number of people, brand new podcast membership course. So you'll get access to my ultimate podcast mastery membership course. You'll get my digital workbook, my progress sheet, my launch checklist, and all of the nitty gritty cheat sheets, templates, and scripts the Podpreneur way. You'll also get weekly live Q&A with me, exclusive WhatsApp group chat, and entry to my private Facebook group, as well as access to all my past interviews and trainings with special guests as well. This is available for a limited time for a limited number of people. So once it's gone, it's gone. But if you'd like to learn how to do exactly what I'm doing now, then I'll show you how. Head on over to ultimatepodcastmastery.com. If you found value in this free podcast, all I ask is that you tell somebody else about it. You don't have to leave a review or write a post on social tagging me in the screw it, just do it hashtag. But if you do, I promise to give you a shout out on a future episode and you have my eternal thanks. I'm at Alex Chisnell on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook, plus at Alexander Chisnell on Instagram. Alongside the Screw It, Just Do It Facebook page, this houses the Screw It, Just Do It community and has the most up-to-date information on all things Screw It, Just Do It, including all of our live events. I love hearing from you. If you either message me on LinkedIn or email alex at screwitjustdoit.org, I promise to reply. Just give me a little time. <laughs>